Hey, Lily. Um, hey, Randy. Is everything okay? No, it all sucks. Surely that's not the case, Randy. Actually, I have proof that it's not the case. I'm listening. Today's guest is Adrian Howard. He's a consultant, coach, and trainer, and a regular presence at some of my favorite events. Oh, I know Adrian. He introduced me to the Failure Swap Shop at one of the product camp events he ran a couple of years back. Yes, that's him. And at this year's Product Camp Southwest UK, he talked about why 90% of everything is crap. So that means that there's 10% which is decidedly not crap. Well, let's see. I'm stuck at home and I just finished watching Tiger King. So it's going to take something really special to prove to me that there's some good out there. But hey, why not? Let's give it a try. The product experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Hi, Adrian. Welcome to the Product Experience Podcast. It's really great to have you. Thank you. Nice to be here. It would be great if you could give us a really quick intro to your background, where you've been working, what you do, um, and how you got into it. Oh, crumbs. Um, I started off as a developer and ended up getting a degree in AI back when it was cool the first time, back in the 90s. From there, I wandered over to do a lot more um, what we now call product and UX and user research work. Um, when I fell into industry in the first dot-com boom, got into agile, real heavy, real early, uh, and ended up spending a lot of time in that fun, messy space where kind of product work, user research, and agile overlap. Um, and that's where I spend my time these days. I work with companies um, consulting and coaching with their teams to help them get better in that space, doing everything from kind of remote coaching with their teams or individuals down to on-site work, hands-on with their work, with their project that they're doing. And especially relevant these days, you do a lot of your work remotely, don't you? Oh, yes. It's fun. <laughs> and, and coincidentally useful right now, but I, who knows what time will tell. I was going to say, I, I feel like a lot of remote workers who have been doing this for, for years must be feeling very smug right now and are kind of like, oh, I've been doing this for years. It comes, you know, comes easy. <laughs> I'm feeling lucky more than smug in the sense of like, I, I have a split between remote work and on-site work. And it just so happens that right now I've been doing a lot of remote work and that was that was booked in, as it were, long, long before the current chaos hit us, as it were. It could have easily been the other way around for me. Mm. And you've spent a lot of time kind of honing your craft within um, a bunch of different communities, haven't you? Uh, and have come across this revelation, which is uh, <laughs> one of the reasons why we're talking to you today. So give us a quick pep talk about Sturgeon's revelation. Um, 
Theodore Sturgeon was a, a science fiction author back in the day. And he responded to some critique of kind of all science fiction was rubbish with basically saying, well, 90% of everything is rubbish. He might have used a, a harsh <laughs> word than rubbish in that statement. Um, and this is something that I have seen in a similar kind of way with some of the communities of practice that I work in. Um, I work with... Um, Agile teams who do a really, really wonderful job and do a fantastic, um, do fantastic work, have great relationships with their customers and their users. And someone else comes along who's only experienced Agile is like as a feature factory. And those two people clash. I've worked with people who have great experiences of doing kind of, you know, design thinking type stuff, those great collaborative co-design um, work. Uh, where they get a lot of value out and suddenly they have to work with someone who's only experienced it as kind of post-it note theatre where nothing useful happens. And those clashes happen because of, I'm kind of, this is an oversimplification and it's hard because I usually explain this with diagrams. But, mm, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, a thing that I see in communities, if you, if you kind of oversimplify things, look at Sturgeon's revelation, say like 90% of everything is, is rubbish. So kind of 90% of any community of practice is is going to be subpar, as it were. And that's kind of an experience we sometimes feel that we have. Uh, we work with a team and some people are better at something and some people are worse at something. And that's how we think the balance is. So when you talk about these communities, you're talking about uh, mix, you're, you're talking about both communities of practice and the team as a whole. And I get the feeling that the community of practice is kind of an intentional community, uh, whereas the team as a whole is everyone who happens to work there. Is there a difference there? Is it, did, or do the intentional communities potentially have a, a different ratio or is this uh, prevalent across intentional and, and normal? For me, the, the, the ratio isn't really the point. The ratio is, is a made and it's a lie. It's an oversimplification. Uh, and I love my lie, but it's, it's just a way to demonstrate that there are, are different levels of ability and our experiences of different level of ability change depending on where you work and who you work with. And the problem is, is that good people tend to work together, as it were. So that tend to, like the, the goodish 10% tend, tend to work together, associate together, to listen to what each other is saying, um, develop those practices together. And that means like the 90% don't see those people and the 10% don't see that 90%. So they have a very biased view of how the community of practice works. Um, and in the same way, how that community presents to the world, the, um, the, the 10% tend to have louder voices and get heard more often. So the rest of the world sees Agile as being awesome when 90% of the, the teams with the label Agile are doing kind of, you know, pseudo scrum and doing a very bad job of it. And just before we go any further into this, just explain what you mean by a community of practice. Um, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of using it in two different ways. That it's the, there's the community of practice within an organisation, um, the user experience people, the product people, as it were. Um, and then in the wider sense of, um, you know, the product people in the world, 
you know, the product people mm-hmm. in the digital space, the UX people in the digital space. So the people who have a, a sense of community, a sense of, uh, uh, a set of shared practices and values. So Adrian, you also said that that ten percent or whatever the number actually is tend to have louder voices and uh, have more of a podium. So does that mean that not everyone at Spotify worked in that famous model, and not everyone at other company that is being celebrated works in this absolutely beautiful way? It's it's just the the small percentage, or um, yes, to some extent. And it's also <laughs> wonderful that if you if you know if you talk to anyone at Spotify, they'll go, "No, we don't work." quite like that anymore and we you know we worked out that for a while and we tried that here and it worked really well here and we tried it somewhere else and it didn't work so well so we changed our practices and that's the lesson from spotify the lessons from spotify shouldn't be work this way the lesson from spotify should be we tried stuff until it worked uh, and then we evolved that until something that worked better so what is the effect of 10% 10% of the community being good and knowledgeable and kind of strong practitioners and uh, 90% of the community not being as good? Um, the effects that I see are kind of like this. And I want to emphasize again that this is just like a gross oversimplification, you know, for effect. Um, 90% of people are not crap. Um, the effect is this. It's the good people want to work with other good people. So those good people tend to cluster together, work in the same places, talk about the same things, work on the same teams and in the same organizations, which means those good people only talk to the other good people. Uh, and the, the people with low, low, fewer experiences, um, different skill sets, don't talk to those good people because they tend to get pushed away. So there's, there's a disassociation between the, the group who are really good and the group who aren't so good. To me, that sounds, and I know it is a, a massive oversimplification, but it makes total sense as well. Um, is this something that you've experienced personally? And in what kind of way have you experienced it? Um, I spent, yes, is the, is the short version of one particular personal example is for a time that like the first time I ran my own company, I was sometimes I was hired into organizations as a with a developer job title, as it were. And sometimes I was hired into organizations with a UX job title. Uh, and when I came in as a UX person, as it were, suddenly my developer knowledge didn't exist as it were, and comments and ideas and suggestions around that area, um, I couldn't have much impact because people, the teams I was working with, experiences of of UX people in that area was making things pretty. Um, And the reverse kind of thing happened when I came in with a a, a developer-ish job title. Then suddenly I couldn't um, have impact on the more UXy things because the UXy team's experience of working with developers was like the stereotype of you know the antisocial person who, who sits in a dark room by themselves tapping. Because of those different experiences of what those communities of practice were like and because of the patterns of hiring at those organizations, the yet they had these self-reinforcing views of what the other was like. Um, 
And it wasn't until I got to work in companies where both the developers and video X people were valued, as it were, and were working together in constructive ways that I could start making a lot more impact on, on how well the organization was doing things. Okay, so the problem you were just talking about of uh, being pigeonholed, I can see that happening at an organizational level with barriers, but at the team level with individual relationships, I'd imagine that it's easier to break through that and uh, get the the buy-in or the, create the relationships that you need to to contribute uh, outside of your out of your job title. Is that the case, or is that sometimes really hard as well? I think it's hard in both places. Um, I think it's some people have never had an experience of working with developers in productive ways. Um, and you have to break the habit of years sort of thing to, on a, mm. on a personal level, diff- different communities, as it were, I, I spent must've been five, seven years of my industrial career before I worked with good QA people. Um, the QA people that I'd worked with tended, until the point where I didn't, tended to be people with uh, who were following checklists, um, who were doing things basically you could get the computer to do a better job of most of the time. Um, and that was my experience of what QA and testing was like. It wasn't until I worked with a great QA person that I went, oh, sugar, these people do a lot more than that. And it took me some time to figure that out. I had a very adversarial relationship with that person for a good few weeks before he kind of sat me down and slapped me around the head and uh, got me working with him in a more productive way. Those stereotypes, I think, are hard for people to break because they're people's lived experiences. They're not people making something up. Um, they're not, a, a, you know, a, a fiction. They, these are real experiences of, of bad working environments that people have had. Okay, so if, like, let's just go with the simplification. If 90% of the community is a bit rubbish and 10% is good, how do I know if I'm in the 90 or the 10%? <laughs> Um, like I said, it's a lie. Um, <laughs> it really is a lie. Nobody is either awesome or rubbish. Um, skills are, um, you know, people have many skills in the community of practice. Uh, it's a continuum, not a binary. What you need to look for, I think, is, is are you making effective change? Um, are you following a set list of rules rather than looking to the context that you're working in and um, seeing what works and what doesn't work and adjusting from that. Um, but I really don't think it is something that you're kind of, you're either a goodie or a baddie, as it were. It's it's um, where this has been useful to me is helping explain to people that um, your view of the other as it were, um, if you're a product person, your view of how developers work um, is not necessarily accurate, um, and vice versa. If you know, if you're working with a development team who's having is is kind of hitting product people all the time, and they're not making the work not working effectively together, maybe that's the developers' experiences of working with terrible product people. That's the message I want to to for people to take away. It's not that kind of one group sucks and the other group doesn't suck. 
Um, it's that people have lots of different experiences because the community of practice that they work with at this company and maybe at other previous companies has affected their view of the world. We've all met people who are, for lack of a better word, a way of putting it, uh, a big deal in their community, and they preach a right way of doing things, uh, which may be very effective, and it may be very effective for them in building brands, but it doesn't necessarily work well outside their little community. And I think what you're talking about is building those bridges and being effective, not only within your within your area, but across a wider range. How do we make sure that we're operating well, that uh, that it's a healthy community? What are the signs of a healthy community from that perspective? Um, a few different things. I think it's curiosity is is the thing that I I value in the communities that, that I spend time in. It's like kind of people going both about how we work and how others work. Um, so they're, they're spending time understanding the context and the reason we have these practices and behaviors rather than trying to follow kind of a list of rules. Um, a guy called Chris Matz wrote a wonderful article, all crumbs, probably a few years ago now, where he talked about the community of needs and the community of solutions sort of thing. The community of needs is all about kind of what problems are we having you know oh, what worked for you that's let me try that oh it didn't quite work for me let me tweak it until it does work you know it's about talking about the things that we're doing in public um trying to understand the context of all things um and then there's the community of solutions the community of solutions is all about kind of systematizing um crossing the chasm type stuff you know it's like how do we turn this into a list of rules so we can easily communicate this and get other people to do the same thing um the people who want kind of you know the box with the instructions on to do the thing um for me community i mean both sides of that coin are needed you know systematizing and communicating practices is hugely valuable um, but for me, most of the value of great communities comes from more of that community of need stuff. It's that active exploration of how we work and understanding the context of what works well and what, what doesn't work well. So um, if we're working within a community or, you know, with, with teams um, or, and within a business and, you know, we become more aware of biases that we've built up over time through working with other people, how do we go about recognizing um, those biases and then taking action to to address them? Something I talk about a lot with product people and user research people is um, taking the skills that you have in understanding your customers and your users and their needs and um, their context. You know, your your interviewing practices, your building persona and jobs to be done and all those kinds of things. Uh, take them and turn them and point them at your own company and the people inside your company and the disciplines inside your company and start learning how everybody else is operating and understanding their needs and treating them with the, um, the same respect and value that you apply to your, um, your customers and your end users. And that usually, that will often give you a whole bunch of information that you weren't 
thinking about from before um, when there was friction happening. Yeah, that that makes total sense. And um, so in some instances, you know, you'll have a negative bias, as in you'll have had a bad lived experience and Mm -hmm. then, um, you know, potentially kind of assume the worst of certain groups of people, like QA people or developers or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, But occasionally, I guess you might end up with more positive bias. I don't know if that's the right phrase where you expect more from people than they know how to give you? Yeah. Have you experienced that as well? And what do you do in that kind of scenario? Do you have to then, do you end, do you find yourself having to coach people to say, oh, right, this is what I was expecting of you because this is what I normally get? Um, yes, totally. You're right. People have those um I've worked with people who are who have problems where I'd not normally expect them to have problems, um, or they shouldn't really have problems because they're in a in a, in a relatively healthy environment, but then then they're not feeling free to do their best work. Um, and often that's been driven by their previous experiences. Partly, um, I mean, obviously, yes, there can be teams that just like people don't have the skills, don't have the ability, and that, that's a thing. But what's often the case is um, they do have the ability, but they've never been in an environment where they could um, show those skills and learn those skills. Um, indeed, they've often been in environments where they're kind of actively um, punished, for want of a better word, for, for doing the good things. You know, where there, I've worked with development teams where when the developer has kind of, you know, raised an issue, of, hey, isn't the UK a problem with that? They've, they've been jumped on by the UX person or the product person and they've learned their lesson and they don't do that again. Um, I sometimes talk about kind of broken teams in the, in the same way that kind of horses are broken. They've, they've learned this behaviour and then they can't escape from that um, pattern of working. So uh, as communities get larger and larger, it can be harder to distribute knowledge and work across them. Well, how do you work? Uh, small communities are easy. You know, you've got the uh, Metcalf's Law. But as you get larger, how do you maintain good practice and good communication? Well, I wish I had a good answer to that question. Because <laughs> uh, I don't. I, I have no freaking clue how to do that reliably and well. Um, I like small communities. Um, I, I like spending time in those things because, like you said, that they are more useful in many ways. They're more reactive. Um, they're more open to change. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean large communities are terrible. Um, you know, mind the products, reasonably fun still. Uh, um, and being a large community, but it's also not trying to necessarily set best practice on the thing. So what's the largest size that you think is is reasonably manageable from that perspective? At what point do you should you start breaking things up into smaller communities to make sure you get value? I don't know. <laughs> I haven't a clue. I'm allowed to say that. Um, <laughs> I'm allowed to say I have no freaking idea how, how to approach that problem in a systematic way. Um, I've, I've experienced relatively small communities that have become quite hidebound and 
um, not open to new ideas. I've experienced quite large communities that have, have stayed open to new ideas for for quite some time and have evolved their practices as, as the community has grown. I, I don't have a good explanation for those differences. Okay, then I'll try this from one more angle and see if we get something that is 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 good and practical that I can use. Um, so, how do you cultivate a good community? What are the characteristics that you that you look for, and how do you know when it's starting to go bad? I'm not sure how much of this reaction is me being a grumpy little person um, <laughs> and me seeing something real in the world. So, disclaimer. Um, the communities that I've worked with and in who feel happier and friendlier and more useful, they tend not to, not to draw strong lines between them and everyone else. Uh, they are more welcoming and opening. They, they don't prescribe the one true rules that make you part of the club or not in the club. They are open to the world facing outwards and wanting more people to come here and be part of us rather than we are the special people and everyone else should just go away. Um, so that that's kind of a signal for me that that community is still open to new ideas and is looking to other places and contexts to understand how it works and how it behaves and the practices that work well and don't work well. Um, when communities become much more um, about the rules and the best practices, um, then I tend to start getting a little bit nervous. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. And, you know, we've we've kind of talked about these people who are the kind of the voice of experience or the, uh, the loudest voices within a community. And then uh, you're kind of 90%, which is potentially 90%, or it might be 20% or whatever, yeah. um, you know, how do we go about ensuring that we're trying to bring those people in and bring everyone along? And I, I know you've kind of talked about being open, but um, have you seen any ways in which communities have really tried to, I guess, level the playing field in terms of engagement and pulling everyone together? I don't think some voices being louder is necessarily a bad thing. Um, we should be talking about the good experiences and the good stories that we have. And those are often places where we get really wonderful bits of learning. But as as Randy has experienced um, with me in the past, I, I'm also a huge fan of failure. Um, I, love, I love the stories of when things go wrong and the lessons we learn from when things go wrong. And talking about that helps normalize some of the bad experiences and helps people who are maybe going through those right now learn that, hey, that there's, there's stuff to learn here. There's, there's ways to get better here. Um, this isn't necessarily normal or expected or something that's always going to happen. So I'd, I'd like to see people talk more about when things go horribly wrong. Um, and how you escaped from that and learned from that rather than just, we did this awesome thing and it was awesome um, because there's a lot of survivor bias in those kinds of um, story. 
okay, I can't let that just lie there because it's going to sound like you're an abject failure who makes mistakes all the time and that's all that you ever make. And I know that's not the case. So the, when you talk about uh, what I've experienced with you, it's this great thing that you do at uh, unconferences. And I'm going to prompt you to just talk about it because it's something that other people should uh, – it's a tool that other people should use. It's it's a lovely tool um, created by a guy called Luke Williams, um, who's with the RLI at the time, I think. Um, it's a thing called the Failure Swap Shop, and it's a way to talk about and celebrate failure. And it's got a really simple format. It's like, hi, my name is Adrian, and I failed. And then everyone in the room has to cheer, um, which is hugely affirming. Um, and then you tell a story about how you failed, and then you tell about the learning that you got from that failure and you stick the learning on a post-it note and at the end of the day people take away the learnings and we keep the failure stories um, nice and quiet and don't repeat them ever again <laughs> um, I'm sure in, you will include the link to my page on on the failure swap shop because it's, it's a it's a hugely fun fun session um, if you're running it with the right group of people and there's always stuff that I come away from that which um, gives me something to think about yeah, and it's hugely cathartic. It's it's a I've experienced you running it a few times, and I always walk away feeling a lot better. <laughs> well, it is that thing of like everyone everyone fails, and we don't talk about those failures nearly enough. Um, and the failure isn't the important thing; it's the learning from the failure that's the important. So speaking of failures, um, I'm curious, you've consulted for a lot of years now. You've been in a lot of different places. You've coached a lot of different people. What's the thing that you're seeing, the, the mistake you see made over and over and over again, that if you could just put it out there, wave your magic wand, uh, write it on your magic post-it note and make it it'll go away forever? Oh, um, I, I, I sometimes half joke that uh, most of my job is just getting people in the room and forcing them to talk to each other and listen to each other. Um, and, and really that's, that's where a bunch of problems just disappear. Um, it's usually, you know, there, there have been so many times where kind of, you know, oh, the user research team are horrible because blah, 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 blah. And the, the user research team are going, well, oh, the design team's horrible because blah, 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 blah. And it's like, okay, let's get the design team and the user research team in a room together. Kind of, hey, what do you do and how do you work together? Oh, it turns out that you're being briefed differently by this person here. Let's stop that happening. And then suddenly everyone's happy. You know, if they'd like done that six weeks ago, this problem would never have happened. Um, so yeah, please, like when you're having problems with people, get in a room together and, and solve the problem rather than complaining about the other person. Adrian, it's been really good talking to you about communities and about your observations. I know in your article you mentioned that you thought that someone might have written a theory about your observations and Sturgeon's law, you know, within communities and, and what you've seen. Has anyone found that 1950s paper that you think that someone might have written on this theory? Um, yes and no. There's some um, tangential stuff in Google's Systems Bible, which um, some kind soul pointed to me on the internet, and it's been a long time since I've read it, so I need to go and reread that book, um, which is an awesome book, um, but I must have last read that about 10 years ago, so I, I need to go reread it. Um, 
And someone else put it to me, which isn't, isn't quite the same thing, but there's, there's a thing called Gresham's Law, which is about money, which is about kind of um, bad money driving out good money, which so kind of the metaphor is not exactly the, the same, but it's the, the idea, I guess, of sometimes kind of the bad, well-accepted practices pushing out the, the better ones. So I don't know if there's a useful metaphor there, but I, I haven't thought about it a lot yet. But no, I've, I've not come come across a, a nice a nice succinct summary that I can go just point people to that paper rather than madly scribble little circles on a diagram on a bit of paper, which is how I normally explain it. So this is going to be now known as Howard's corollary to Sturgeon's revelation, or something to that effect. No, I'm I'm just going to call them <laughs> Sturgeon's biases because I'm very much in favour of not naming things after me. <laughs> <laughs> Adrian, it's been really great talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, it's been an absolute blast and um, I look forward to speaking to you again. It's been a pleasure. Um, thank you very much for your time and the great question. So, are you convinced? Well, let's see. I'm feeling confident that you and Adrian are crap so yeah i'll take it up to 10 percent of things aren't crap and that's a very good thing i think there might be more nuance to it than that randy but i'll start with you getting that much out of it see you all next week the product experience is part of the mind the product network our hosts are me that's lily smith and randy silver Emily Tate is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Emily is ours alone, but we're happy to share Luke if you need someone to edit your own podcast. Hey, you can't share him too much. He's my husband. (laughs) (laughs) Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW. That's P-A-U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg and plays bass in the band for letting us use the music. And sign up for your local product tank, a regular meetup in over 185 cities worldwide. There's probably one someone near you. And if there's not, you can start one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com slash product tank. Here's Global Coordinator Mark Abraham to tell you more about it. Product Tank is a global community of meetups in over 155 cities across the world, driven by and for product managers. Whether you have a group discussion or you're listening to speakers, The whole idea is to create a safe environment for product people to come together and to share their learnings and tips. 